Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The New Statesman. I'm Will Lloyd, commissioning editor and writer for The New Statesman. You're listening to The New Statesman podcast. In this episode, I'm speaking to the political philosopher John Gray, whose fascinating new book recontextualizes Thomas Hobbes' seminal philosophical text, Leviathan, for the 21st century. Nature, the art whereby God hath made and governs the world, is, by the art of man, as in many other things, so in this also imitated, that it can make an artificial animal. With those words, Thomas Hobbes begins Leviathan, one of the most influential works of philosophy ever written. Ever since it was published in 1651, Leviathan has unsettled and challenged how we see the world. Hobbes's stark political vision continues to see through every generation's ethical and political vanities. In The New Leviathans, John Gray illuminates the insoluble dilemmas, paradoxes, and absurdity of our world today, four centuries after Hobbes's death. Lively, wide-ranging, provocative, and realistic, The New Leviathans is, like everything John writes for The New Statesman, filled with fascinating and daunting perceptions. He joins me today to discuss the life and work of Thomas Hobbes and The New Leviathans that prowl our own times. So John, when did you first read Thomas Hobbes and what was your initial reaction to his writing? I must have first read Hobbes, and that would have been Hobbes's Leviathan, when I was in my late teens. And my initial impression was partly stylistic, which is that I admired the vigor, what I call in my book, the lapidary finality of his prose style. He's a great pro-stylist. There's a certain almost brutality in his way of writing, whereby he forces home truths that most readers then, when he published the book in the 17th century and later in the 20th century, when I read it in the 1960s, that most readers don't want to accept. In terms of the argument, I thought the argument then the basic claim of Hobbes, which is that the default condition of human beings is conflict. I thought it was true, and I still think it's true. But as I've um, uh, applied Hobbes now, I mean, the purpose of this book, I suppose, or one of its purposes, is to use Hobbes as a lens through which to view the present, to use this 17th century 
thinkers work as a lens through which to view the present, I came increasingly to think that there were some fundamental contradictions in his work, partly but not completely recognized by Hobbes himself, in which came from him his adopting a kind of rationalism, a view that, of how human life could be improved and made more peaceful, and that I thought were illusory or, or mistaken. That's the view I came to maybe 20 or 30 years ago, and which I'm expressing in this book now. But my initial reaction to it all those years ago in the 1960s was one of um, excitement and admiration for the beauty, the stark beauty of his prose, and what I then thought was the stark rigor of his thought. What's least understood about him as a human being is that he combined a very timid, uh, fearful disposition. I mean, in his thought, the dominant human uh, impulse or passion is not, in fact, power, which crude interpretations of his thought always say that Hobbes thinks people seek, human beings seek power above all else. He thought the predominant impulse was fear. And I think that was because in most aspects of his life, he was filled with fear. And this wasn't unreasonable at the time because he lived in the middle of a civil war. He fled the country. He rather proudly, he was proud of his fear. He said, I was the first of all that fled to Europe, uh, where he lived for a number of years. But side by side with his predisposition to timidity and fear, he was intellectually extremely proud and extremely uncompromising and unyielding. He thought that most philosophy up to him uh, was uh, nonsense. He had no respect for the ancient uh, Greek philosophers or for the medieval philosophers. He thought that the whole discipline needed to be refounded and that he'd done that. Just to emphasize the point, the fears for his life and for his freedom were, were completely real. His copies of the Leviathan were burnt in Oxford during his lifetime. Most of the people by whom he was surrounded who close association, um, abandoned him and, and some betrayed him. So it was entirely real. As I say, he almost boasted about them, um, that he had this characteristic of timidity. And he, he imported it into his philosophy. So other human beings can attack you, they can kill you, they can take whatever you gained, they can destroy what's dear to you. And to prevent that, you need either power over them or you need what he called a sovereign, the Leviathan, a state whose primary and overriding purpose was peace. And so you've identified the sort of problem that Hobbes himself identified with humanity, and then Leviathan as a solution to that problem. But I, I wondered, what did you think Hobbes misunderstood about our predicament? Is that the fundamental problem with human beings? And is Leviathan a good solution to it? Yeah, they're two separate issues, I think. He was fundamentally right in that it's easy for human beings to slide into a condition of anarchic conflict. They don't normally, human beings, conflict with each other as individuals in, in most uh, periods of history. I think he's right that it's easy to slide into that condition. What he underestimated was the difficulty of getting out of it because he says somewhere, uh, if only my book would fall into the hands of some great prince or lessons could be applied and you'd have peace. Well. It never happens like this. And this is partly because of a feature which he recognized in his philosophy, but didn't integrate with the rest of it, which is that actually human beings, 
they may be powerfully driven by fear, but they're certainly not always driven by self-preservation. I mean, the, the one impulse he he thought predominated all of it, or all, all the others, was self-preservation. Human beings will sacrifice their lives and those of others for the sake of many goals to which they give priority over uh, self-preservation. And this connects with the, a neglected aspect of his philosophy, which not many people have written about, and there have been two or three good academic studies of it here and there, which is his philosophy of language, or rather his theory of absurdity, because one of the chapters of Leviathan, which I was most struck by, is his account of absurdity, where he says absurdity, of all the animals, only man, only man has the privilege of absurdity, and especially philosophers. And if you then dig into what he means by absurdity, it's using nonsensical words in the belief that they refer to something real. And I think that provides a key, actually, to the aspect of human life that, in his main official philosophy, he neglected, which is that human beings are uh, uh, creatures who make sense of their lives through words, and very often through nonsensical words. The privilege of absurdity in humans is making sense of life through nonsense. And maybe human beings can't avoid that, but it becomes dangerous when they risk their own lives and kill other human beings for the sake of words. The deeper problem is if human beings value other things apart from, and more than in many contexts, self-preservation, then I think it's a lot harder than Hobbes thought. John, you suggest that, um, that Hobbes actually, in fact, wasn't pessimistic enough. So I just want to read you something from early on in the book. And you say, you write even, Hobbes's Leviathan aimed to protect human beings from one another. 21st century Leviathans go beyond Hobbes in offering a kind of salvation. The new Leviathans offer meaning and material progress, the security of belonging in imaginary communities, and the pleasures of persecution. What are these new Leviathans? Where are they? Why was Hobbes not pessimistic enough about what, what the sort of sovereign or the Leviathan could be? Well, the new Leviathans go beyond, as I say in that quotation, Will, uh, go beyond the old the one that Hobbes imagined, because partly for technological, but also for other reasons, he didn't think that the Leviathan should try to control belief. He thought that was impossible. People could believe what they wanted as long as they didn't act on it. To some extent, he wanted the Leviathan to control language. He was very wary of religious enthusiasm. He was very wary of people having different interpretations of the Bible and then fighting to the death over which was correct. So he thought the state should always have priority over religious authority. Churches should always be subject to the authority of the state. But the new Leviathans, as I call, have come into being, some would say, and I suggested in my book that early examples of them were the, the totalitarian states that emerged in the Soviet Union and uh, later on in China, in that they promised more than peace. They did promise peace. I mean, what, one of the sources of legitimacy of both Lenin's regime, and then later on of Xi Jinping's regime, is that Lenin's regime offered the promise, and to some extent fulfilled the promise of ending the Russian Civil War, which was a, an understudied catastrophe of the 20th century, maybe 10 million dead, famine, a continuous murder, and pestilence for three, four, five years, huge population loss and emigration. Lenin promised to bring peace, and to an extent he did bring peace, but bringing peace, the Soviet regime created what I call in the book an artificial state of nature, which is that people in the 
regime that emerged, not just under Stalin, but before Stalin, the Lenin became uh, afraid of each other because Lenin also imposed a, an orthodoxy, an intellectual orthodoxy, an ideological orthodoxy. But I think the most sort of interesting examples of new Leviathans are in fact in former liberal states. That's to say, emerging partly from the financial crisis, but then from the pandemic, and from the more general development of liberal states. Liberal states now um, uh, want to, and perhaps even need to promise more to their population than just peace. I think they will continue to promise peace, but along with that, they have promised progress, and the kind of progress particularly in consumption, uh, production and consumption, ever more innovative technologies which make life easier in some respects and more interesting than it's been in the past, ubiquitous videos, television, streaming, taking over from those older technologies and so on, and then various forms of virtual reality making life more interesting. And one of the problems of the new Leviathans is that this promise of material progress has been um, jolted in its delivery, partly by the pandemic, but more fundamentally, perhaps by climate change. So actually, the generations that are now young can't and don't actually, to a large extent, expect themselves to get richer and richer through their lives. If they plan to have children, they don't expect those children to be automatically better off. I think one of the problems of the new Leviathans is that promising more than peace, promising open-ended progress, which is that populations will get not only more secure, but more uh, have more um, varied, interesting, and affluent lives. That promise is actually very hard to achieve now, even in China, where which had the biggest, not only a kind of a regime which before Xi Jinping, which shut down the Cultural Revolution, which is still remembered with horror by Chinese who are old enough to have lived through it, but also then later on had the biggest expansion in human history over the longest period. Even there now, that's grinding to a halt or at least blowing down. So there's a built-in difficulty in the new Leviathans in going beyond what Hobbes promised, but maybe they have to go beyond uh, because this may be a popular demand now. It may be that uh, in throughout the world, a promise of better material life standards of living in the future is a precondition political legitimacy. And when, as in America now, there are large sections of the population that have had hardly any improvement in their real incomes over 20 or 30 years. John, there's a chapter in this book called Artificial States of Nature. And many of the sort of vignettes in this chapter use the siege of Leningrad in the Second World War as a kind of stage. And I wondered if you could talk about why you made that choice. I find the stories surprising and moving and, and often they're incredibly horrific as well. And I wondered why you kept coming back there. And the other thing I wanted to add to that was just once you've explained that, Russia is so important to you. You're not a Russian specialist, but in your no. work, Russia looms very large. And it seems like you, you can't quite let go of Russia for whatever reason. And I wondered why that was. I'll answer the first first. It, um, I get basically two reasons for that. One is that one of the great intellectual influences in my life was Isaiah Berlin, uh, who I uh, got to know in the uh, early 1970s till he died uh, 25 years later. He introduced me to Russian literature and what I became, and to Russian thinkers as well, and what I became fascinated by in Russian thinkers was their confronting, their perpetual 
confronting of what seemed to be insoluble dilemmas and the way in which these thinkers still had relevance today. So if you said, as I do in the book, that there are parallels between the situation in the United States or other Western and that of late 19th century Russia, people think completely preposterous. It's absolutely absurd. There are not. I think there are several and they're rather deep. And what then happened in Russia was was this sort of relatively sudden, although there were many signs before, disappearance of an entire regime, a huge regime, a catastrophic fall. It's not so much that I can't give it up. It's more that I almost insist on it because it's so contrary to Western liberal uh, assumptions, which are that what happened in Russia could never happen anywhere else. It's hard to understand because there are many singularities, but there's another reason why it's hard to understand, which is that it mocks, humbles, and nullifies the Western liberal claim to have created a civilization or a form of life or form of government that could last forever. And then the siege of Leningrad and, and artificial states of nature. Well, the siege of Leningrad is interesting, and as you say, horrifying um, and moving as well, because there were two types of artificial states of nature going on at the same time. Before the siege, the Soviet state had created a an artificial state of nature in which, for example, um, bread had become the supreme luxury in which people competed with one another for party positions which secured food and uh, housing, and in which um, if you lost those privileges, you would either die of starvation or you might even be executed. But on top of that Soviet artificial state of nature, the, the Nazis created a second one by blockading Leningrad. And some of the features of um, Hobbes', Hobbes um, thought became embodied. A particular one which I mentioned in the book is the way in which the, the body, the bodily contours, the bodies of the people in the, in the siege of Leningrad changed. They, large numbers, the majority, saw changes in the way they looked. Uh, when they looked into the mirror, they saw someone completely different from the person they expected to see because they're health had been undermined by uh, chronic malnutrition. Um, of course, not everyone suffered to the same degree. What I discovered when I was researching this some years ago, and then more recently, was that uh, there were poets in Leningrad, there were official poets, of course, who had to write and did write endlessly optimistic uh, accounts. But a number of those poets wrote secretly, and some of their poems survived, including some which we have good reason to think it never been seen by a single other human being apart from the poet until they were rediscovered long later, in which they write vivid, compelling, powerful, and sometimes terrifying poetry about what life was really like or how they themselves experienced it. And I think that interested me very much because it brought out the fact that even in those extreme circumstances, even if no one was going to read them during the lifetimes of the poet, they felt the need to write down some kind of poetic rendition of what they were um, of what they were experiencing and that I think was a kind of kind of heroism um, that I found um, rather rather heroic on top of the everyday heroism whereby people resist Nazi barbarism despite all all their suffering coming up after the break Putin Prigozhin and treachery if you're subscribed to the new statesman you can get all our episodes ad free on the new statesman app you can get it on both iOS and Android just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. John, I don't think we can leave Russia without just briefly touching on what's happened in the last couple of weeks. I think there is sort of one overlying story and one sort of underlying story. The overlying story is obviously that Vladimir Putin organized the assassination of Prigozhin, supposedly. And then the underlying story is, we've seen this in a lot of American newspapers like the Washington Post and the New York Times, military advisors in Ukraine, Americans briefing about the counteroffensive, their unhappiness with the Ukrainians, that's not really going as well as they thought. There's been waste and sloth and just signs of something curling at the edges slightly there. And I wondered if if you could speak a little bit about Putin and about this war, because the book is very interesting. You write about Western puzzlement, about Russia and Putin. And you also say, I'll just quote you here, Putin's authority was always precarious, resting on a coalition of organized crime with security services that had no precedent in the Roman of despotism that endured for 300 years. How long can Putin endure? And how long can this war last? Putin is yesterday's man, whatever happens and however he leaves power. Doesn't mean he's going to be toppled soon. He's an expert in survival. <laughs> he is like a gangster in that respect. He studied survival with great care and he takes a lot of necessary steps to secure his own survival. And I think he saw in Prigozhin um, a danger because um, Prigozhin is often represented in the Western press as sort of thuggish man because of the way he looked in photographs and no doubt he was in many respects, but he actually came from a somewhat intelligentsia background. His family were gallery owners and he was more skillful in many respects, I think, than um, in addressing Russians, uh, in uh, including uh, disillusioned fighters and other and non-Russian fighters put in to fight this war. He was more skillful in addressing them than Putin is. Putin is a dull espiocrat. <laughs> Uh, with a strong gangsterous side to him, completely ruthless as far as he goes. But whether he can galvanize is a very open question. What happened when Prigozhin backed out, whether it was part of some larger setup or whether he just backed off, it can't be known. But Putin bided his time and waited for a moment which he thought was right to demonstrate. Putin is now stronger. I've noticed commentators are all saying that, well, he's stronger now. I'm not quite sure of that, actually, because he's also trying to integrate the Wagner armies more closely into the Kremlin. I can't imagine a credible succession story that doesn't involve his being killed or gotten out of the way somehow. Let's put it like that. Now, on the other side of that, you've raised the question, Will, of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. And I think it's being recognized now uh, in the West that with all of the catastrophic initial error and with all of its extraordinary cruelties, torture, industrial-scale torture, abduction of children and bombing and deliberate targeted bombing of civilian populations and others, with all of these features, the Russian positions have got an enormous strength simply because of scale and volume. So that's a fundamental limitation of Ukrainian or until at least recently Western strategy that I think is being born in now. 
on on the West. And of course, on top of all that, is that if there was a change of leadership in America from the Democrats to the Republicans, then most of the Republican candidates, especially the leading candidate Trump, would not continue the war in Ukraine. When I was reading The New Leviathans, I started thinking, I wonder where Hobbes is being read most widely and where he's most sort of properly taught. And it occurred to me that it was unlikely to be in Western universities at this point. But, but I did think it's probably in China. And in the book, China emerges as a kind of philosophical tyranny. When I've asked Chinese, I've visited the country a few times, who are you reading? And they tell me, some have read de Tocqueville. They were reading for a while, for example, because of his writings on what causes revolutions. They know they're in danger. I mean, one of the... <laughs> One of the features of the Chinese elite is that it's aware that it's riding a tiger. They watched with utter horror what happened in Soviet Russia, its implosion. But many of them have said that they've been reading Hobbes. And I think this sort of general feature of China at the moment, which is interesting, which is that they also study classical Western authors in the original languages. So they think these are worth studying. They think they're valuable. They don't think they're part of a cultural tradition, which is worthless or so deeply tainted by racism that it's been invalidated. They don't think that. They think that these writers still have something to teach them. Let's turn to the West and something you call hyperliberalism, which, um, which pops up in the book a few times. Where did hyperliberalism come from? Some people call it woke, but there are other uh, forms of... It's only about 5% of the book, I think. But... Um, It'll probably be what most reviewers and interviewers, but not you, will will focus on. There'll be 95% of their, their, their interest in it, but it's only 5%. But what I say is, in the book, uh, is that it came from within liberalism, which is that liberalism emerged, emerged from the wars of religion more than from the Enlightenment. Um, and uh, it was always built on certain pre-liberal norms. And then the liberal project became more aggressively universal. Uh, on the economic side, you had market liberalism, the idea of a global free market. And on the political side, you had the idea of regime change, of accelerating a process, of, uh, a process of the spreading of liberal values and norms right throughout the world. One of the features which I think is significant about hyperliberalism is that the identity politics that is associated with it, when that became a dominant factor in, um, in Western liberalism, when that hyperbolic kind of claim became a dom, the consequence of that was to lose something important, particularly on the left, which was to focus on class inequalities. If you're constantly harping on cultural identity and on, no doubt, in many cases, often real imperial or colonial or internal ethnic repression, but if that's what you focus on, there's a risk, more than a risk, that you uh, stop looking at, stop the structural systemic inequalities in capitalism, but have actually gotten greater in many respects in the last 20 or 30 years. So the kind of moderation of the last 50 years, kind of these inequalities in capitalism were moderated, contained or reduced in Britain under old labor social democracy. The last question, because we're just slightly running out of studio time. Um, John, there's a very forbidding and wonderful sentence towards the end of the book. I'll quote it. Uh, in its current and final phase, the liberal West is possessed by an idea of freedom. Now, this made me think, is there some sort of exorcism that could be performed 
paradoxically to liberate the West from this idea of sort of self-fashioned individual freedom? No, I don't think I don't think there is. Uh, one of the writers I quote in the book quite a lot is, is a, a Russian Orthodox Christian theologian called Berdaya, who was almost sent to Siberia under the Tsars <laughs> because he was so heterodox that he was excommunicated from the church. And he believed for part of his life that uh, there was an exorcism of most of it, I think, till he died, that what he considered the Soviet regime, kind of semi-demonic regime, could be exorcised. And it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't even when it collapsed. Some of the worst features of it reemerged, as I said in the book, actually, when um, one of the features of the Putin regime is that uh, differs from the earlier communist regime. And all the power wasn't with the security agencies and with organized crime. There was a however, repressive um, uh, apparatus of the Communist Party. And then it became a, a collusive, collusive arrangement between organized crime and, um, and elements in and, and the security. So, so I don't think there is. I think, I think the West has to go through what other civilizations and other regimes have gone through. It's not special in that respect. It'll go through very difficult periods. The outcome is not settled, as I say. And in the meantime, by the way, I think you see, I think we shouldn't try and work out who's going to win and then back outside. <laughs> I think what we should do is carry on with if you if there are elements, which I think there are in Western liberalism, toleration, respect for other points of view, and the practice of free speech and expression. As long as we can do them, we should carry on doing them. Whatever then happens, leave that to the fates. Do what you can now. But I don't actually see any magical, any policy, any leader, any mantra which could deliver the West from its internal problems because they're in the West. They can be explo exploited or used by autocrats, by Russia, and by China and others, but they're actually internal to the, uh, to the civilization of the West. John, thank you so much. That was really wonderful. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. John's book, The New Leviathans, Thoughts After Liberalism, will be available in shops and online from the 7th of September. You can find more of John Gray's writing at the New Statesman website, and the link to that is in the show notes. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Will Lloyd, and my guest, John Gray. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. We're produced by Catherine Hughes.